These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in chasing my peculiar passion for beer and brewing through conversations with the amazing and curious people who work in the beer industry. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, whether that is mere minutes or many hundreds of miles from my home. Many home brewers follow a predictable arc from the first kits that they receive as gifts or they get out of curiosity through playing around with simpler ingredients, extract in particular, up to the much more sophisticated technique of all grain brewing. This is the same process essentially that professional brewers do at an industrial scale. Myself as a home brewer, I had a moment a few years back after making that transition myself to all-grain brewing, where I wondered, especially seeing the rise of craft maltsters online, if it would be possible for me to get locally sourced, grown and produced malted barley to go into my beers. Fast forward to late fall, early winter of 2016, where I found Dark Cloud Malt House online. I had the great fortune within a couple of weeks to meet both owners and to get to start working with their product at the homebrewing scale. I've had the privilege of a very close-in view as they've navigated the proof-of-concept phase of the malt house, and as you'll learn in the story that I'm happy to share with you in this episode, are about to undertake the next stage of growth on to sustainability and what that means for them in the near and long-term future as one of the earliest commercial malt houses here in the state of Maryland. I'm at Dark Cloud Mall House with Jesse and Danny, the co-founders and owners, here to talk about something people maybe not are not as familiar with, one of the most important ingredients in the beer that they enjoy. Danny, Jesse, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. To start off, since we've got a couple of people in this recording, can you introduce yourself, say your name, so people can track who's talking a little bit better? Yeah, I'm Danny Buswell, uh, co-founder of Dark Cloud Mall House. I'm Jesse Case, the other founder of Dark Cloud Malt House. To start with, what called you to beer and or, specifically since we are in a malt house, malt? Um, I'll go first. Uh, beer, I got a calling for beer about <clears throat> eight or nine years ago. I was working as a project manager and um, just got more and more into home brewing, started buying more and more stuff. Pretty soon my basement was filled with all kinds of stuff. And um, I decided to make it a day job. So I quit my job as a project manager and I uh, worked at a brewery, um, two breweries actually. And uh, it was great. Um, kind of got turned on to malt about three, four years ago. Um, I was helping my brother-in-law with a project on his farm. And we, um, we helped him build a facility on site. And I just started thinking about malting and beer and uh, farming and beer and some supply opportunities. And um, 
the creative aspect too is really intriguing. There's all these malts out there and um, you can make anything you want on your system. So that, that's really what got me thinking about malt. Yeah, from my standpoint, it actually started a little less uh, sexy, if you will. I, I was um, intrigued in craft malting from an engineering standpoint because I recognized that there was a gap between um, process equipment available and uh, capacity. Uh, most of the malt houses out there are huge in the U.S. and North America. Uh, and to do it on a craft level, um, to make it economically viable, you need, you need something um, uh, much more reasonable. So uh, I took it on as a challenge initially from an engineering standpoint to, to design and uh, try to get a, a malt system up and running. Um, but then as I investigated more, it just became uh, kind of an expanding challenge, but also very exciting in that we had an opportunity to do small batch creative malts that a large producer may not be able to make because they may not be able to sell that much, but we can do it because we're small and we can also take uh, locally grown grains uh, and, and use them. So uh, it was kind of uh, uh, an initial challenge that stoked the interest and then the fire really began with uh, uh, creating unique products like Jesse mentioned. So, so how did you guys meet in order to start this endeavor? Well, actually, our local ag extension agent um, introduced us. I was, um, <clears throat> we were kind of along parallel paths, and we had both, both reached out to him. Uh, he's an ag extension, extension agent with the University of Maryland. And um, he said, you know, I think you might want to talk to this guy because he's, uh, you know, he, he knows a lot about engineering. And he probably told Danny, talk to me because, you know, I have a brewing background. So he made that introduction, and, um, and that's where it all started. So why the name Dark Cloud? We arrived at Dark Cloud from a little uh, different means. It took us a, a lot of uh, headbanging to to come up with a name. But uh, at the end of the day, there was a lot of there's a lot of rainbow malts and sunshine malts and and and, and chipmunk malts out there that we just weren't uh, uh, we didn't feel like it matched us because in Maryland we were kind of getting more of a um, it can't be done, you know. Malting barley can't be grown here, and it's too wet, and it's too humid, and, and it's too hot. So that's kind of where we started from, um, and, and we thought, you know, it's 2017. Uh, I, I wonder if it can be done. I, I, think, I think we can grow grain here and malt it. Yeah. Was it solely that, that curious thought of you think you can, or is there something that gives you some confidence thinking despite that sort of pessimism or that, that weight of history or received wisdom about growing uh, malting quality barley in the state? You did it anyway. We did. And, you know, that's not to say we went out completely on our own, you know, in talking with our ag extension agents. Maryland, uh, Delaware, Virginia, they're great barley producing areas. And there's a lot of feed barley grown in the area, and nobody had really toyed with uh, malting barley. And, you know, there's some additional requirements. There's some additional costs, for sure, with fungicide and things like that to combat that, you know, humidity and temperature that we have here. But there's a lot of barley grown here. So, you know, that sort of helped us with, again, with our ag extension agents saying, you know, I, maybe it can be grown here. And they, they felt that way, too. There were some experiments that were done. 10 years ago, and I don't think they panned out so well, but 
um, yeah, we, we did. We wanted to try again, and we wanted to try to prove the concept before we jumped into this thing with, with both feet. You say uh, barley is grown here, and it's actually a great region to grow barley. Why is that so? What makes uh, this area particularly suitable for barley? And does that, do you feel, make it also especially good for making barley specifically to malt for beer? I would say that um, the region's known for its feed barley, and it was explained to us, again, Jesse and I, um, we come from this from a humble perspective in that we're not farmers and we know we're not, although we have to know enough about the, the uh, starting point grain that we need to convey that to a farmer and help them along the way, especially since um, here we're not used to growing malting barley. But uh, backing up a step and talking about what made it a great barley region, I, I, what I've heard is that um, when the dairy farmers were prominent, more prominent in the area than they are now, uh, they grew a ton of barley for uh, cattle feed. And uh, it's kind of... Um, gone by the wayside because the cost of feed barley is so low that it's just not profitable for them to uh, grow anymore on a large scale. And I say that quickly, but in reality, there's a lot of folks still growing a lot of feed barley. Um, it's just not an ec a very economically favorable crop to grow. Um, so from a malting side, we have much stricter parameters. Um, you know, we're, we're looking for... Uh, Dawn levels less than uh, essentially half of what uh, a wheat is, is scrutinized for when it goes to a flour mill. So we're we're looking for and and Don is this has come up in a past episode, but I'll make sure I get it right this time. Don the, is the uh, layman the layman's term is vomitoxin, and essentially, uh, if the levels exceed one part per million, um, and you make beer with it, uh, your consumer could potentially uh, have all those bad effects of vomiting and you know yeah and i think before you even before you even feel it you'll have beer gushing i believe if you were to bottle it uh, sure, what i understand as well so bad effects to the, to the beer itself. yeah so you were saying about the so you have some stricter parameters for growing barley specifically suitable for malting and done is just one of them. We've got, uh, you know, we've got germination. We've got protein levels. Uh, there's, there's a list of, uh, you can go on AMBA and uh, there's 15, you know, parameters. And that's scary. You know, that's scary to a farmer who has successfully grown, um, you know, feed barley and, and scary for good reason. You know, that you, you want to be cautious and you don't want to put a bunch of money in the ground and not be able to get out of it what you put into it. Very quickly, AMBA is? American Malting Barley Association. So at the same time, though, there's that risk. There's got to be a greater reward, right? So you're talking about feed barley, which is so commoditized that people are perhaps just not growing it because it can be had very cheaply. But malting barley, there's got to be a big upside. If, if that, that risk pays off, yeah. there's got to be a commensurate reward, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things we're most excited about is that at the end of the day, as we expand, we're going to be able to develop more contracts with local farmers, and we're going to be able to pay them uh, three to four times what they're currently getting for feed barley for malting barley that meets spec. And that's just another um, option for them in the scheme of things. In, in an industry where there's, uh, it seems like it's 
around here whittled its way down to a corn soy rotation. Um, be cool to add something else to the to the uh, pot there. So that brings up an interesting point. We are on a farm. You grow some of the barley here, right? And you're also working with other farmers in the area. Can you talk about how that partnership works in terms of your expertise as maltsters and what you're able to do on this property versus um, how you're able to collaborate with other growers in the immediate area? Sure. Yeah. We uh, so on the farm. The farm's about 170 acres, and um, the majority of the grain that we malt is actually grown here. Um, we work very closely with a farmer right down the road who's got a combine and he's got a seed drill, and uh, you know he he does the farming for us here. And um, what's nice is again when when Danny and I started out, it was somewhat difficult to try to find people who wanted to plant number one acreage, but number two, small acreage, because we're still so small at this point. You know, nobody really wants to plant a five acre plot of barley that where there's a lot of cost going into it. So we have found some of those farmers, but this has kind of been our experimental, uh, if nobody wants to plant this grain, let's plant it here and let's see how it, how it comes out. And from that, you know, as we've grown and um, some more, you know, word has gotten out about our malting, we've met some farmers who, again, are willing to go in with this, you know, five, eight acre plot with the promise of, as we expand, you know, we'll, 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 you know, we're, we're looking at an expansion, which we can talk about later, but uh, we're looking at a, you know, five to six fold expansion. So then we can really get to some more meaningful acres with, with some of the farmers who have really come on board with us and some new farmers. Is that small acreage that some of these farmers are starting to put in, is that only a toehold against that future expansion? Or does that also allow you to experiment there as well? Are they bringing in, say, grains or varieties that you're not growing here and allowing you to, to kind of gain some experience across? Yeah, yeah. So right now, the, the folks that are uh, off-site, we're getting our wheat off-site. Uh, we've got some spelt on a very small farm um, where they wanted to try spelt, and we're excited to malt that. Uh, oats, <clears throat> rye. So it is. They're, they're really filling also an experimental. Uh, I think we had to be first here to do it. Um, it, it certainly helped to have some acreage to do it, but, but um, you know, that's not to say there aren't folks that, that do want to experiment with small plots. And so it's kind of, it's, it's all, the timing has been pretty nice because, as, you know, as we're looking at expanding, we've, we've got different crops in different areas and, and we can sort of grow and bring on some new farmers. This location, is it intentional or sort of incidental? And when I say intentional, it seems to me like guys are actually pretty well situated given the you know 80 or so currently open breweries with several dozen more in planning like you're pretty central to a lot of what's going on in craft beer in the state yeah it, it was intentional you know it's it's a this is how western howard county is unique because there's farm area but then nearby you've got frederick you've got columbia you've got baltimore you've got washington dc and you've got all the other suburbs that uh, I grew up in College Park, and there were farms nearby when I was a kid, and now it's all developed. So, you know, it's a unique area, and we did. We, my wife and I certainly thought about that from a standpoint of being in close proximity. We didn't really, um, we weren't sure what we even wanted to do with the farm at first, but but it is, you know, it's always, I think it's great to be surrounded by uh, civilization and businesses. So the farm came before the Malthouse? I mean, I'm not sure I tracked that when we were talking about the founding 
uh, of the, the business. That's, that's kind of interesting. That yeah, really so we, my wife and I had been looking for, before we bought the farm, we'd probably been looking for three years, um, ever since I uh, was working down in Tennessee and was working on a farm there. So, uh, yes, the, far, the idea of the farm came before the malt house. Um, I would say the purchase of the farm and the malt house idea were pretty concurrent. You know, then they were pretty, um, quite honestly, it's probably the most impulsive thing I've ever done in my life. So it, it, I usually try to plan things a little better. It was not, uh, <laughs> not fully planned out, but, it, but it's, um, you know, it, it's worked out. Sometimes best things in life are the ones you don't plan for. It's actually kind of funny, man, because I remember our first conversation after Bob sent you my number and vice versa we talked and i think the end of it you're like yeah i'm going to look at this farm on saturday or something and um then we talked maybe a couple weeks later and you're like yeah i just bought a farm <laughs> i was like holy hell who is this guy we hadn't even met in person yet That's i don't crazy. think and, uh, uh here we are so uh yeah you talked about in your answer about what called you to, to, to beer, to malt, to this place. You talked about sort of some of the, the challenges that got your interest up. And I know since I've known you guys for a while that you've had to build a lot of this equipment. I think you touched on it earlier when you were talking about like there's not perhaps the same uh, equipment available, the same options available for a modern craft brewery. It's more like perhaps what it was like 10, 12, 15 years ago where a microbrewery would be retrofitting a, a dairy equipment, a Grundy tank, in order to make fermenters. Can you talk a bit about those challenges, like where that started and you know, how you evolved that? Yeah, when Jesse and I first started looking, there was a German option, uh, Schultz process, and there was Casper um, Schultz process, and then there was also a Chinese knockoff, which we weren't even sure how to contact, frankly. But... Um, the Schultz system was like a million bucks and uh, for maybe, I'm going to screw it up, but maybe three or five tons. Uh, and the, the Chinese was a lot cheaper, but there was a lot of uncertainty as well. And we frankly didn't have a whole lot of money. We had much, much less than that. And it yeah, was, we didn't have uh, enough money for either option. Either option. Basically. Yeah. And, um, it, and, and it was unknown. So we had so many unknowns. First, the farming. We didn't know if we could grow malting barley uh we didn't know if we could uh malt that barley into something and we knew we were gonna have to charge a lot we didn't know if local guys would be interested in paying quite a bit more for a local product so um on paper a lot of stuff made sense but there was a whole lot that had to be proven so um we paid for this uh out of pocket and uh basically you know we we tried to build a system and cut every corner we could without sacrificing malt quality. So, you know, we can control humidity and temperature, but, but what you see here and our, our listeners can't see, but you know, what, what we're looking at is, um, you know, a system that we did ourselves. We basically cobbled it together and a lot of that credit goes to Danny because, you know, he can, he can do things I can't do, like look at a heater and, uh, look at a fan and say, all right, that's, uh, you know, we've got so many CFM here and we need more, we need less. And so, you know, we put it together, everything but the welding we've, we've done here. But it, it was, it was all a big challenge. It was, um, there were some uncertainties, but that was, this, this is, this here is the proof of concept. So we've, we've tried to really dot all our I's and cross our T's and make sure that, you know, we, we understand the market and we understand what the, what the next step is. 
were there opportunities that came along with that? The fact that you're not using sort of a turnkey system, but you're figuring it out as you go, you're leveraging Danny's deep engineering skills. Are there things that you can do because you did build it yourself or you realize after the fact that like, oh, we got lucky, like we're able to do something with this that's to advantage, to benefit or, or unique in some way? Um, well, you know, they've been malting for a long time and, and, and I, Jesse and I haven't even had the opportunity yet to go and tour some of the European malt houses we hope to one day. But uh, so there's a lot of technology out there and we'd be amiss if we didn't, if we said that we invented something new. Um, but we did give ourselves the capability of reaching temperatures and uh, air conditions that uh, you may not strive to achieve necessarily if you just uh, were right out of the cuff, just read a book about malting and wanted to go. We kind of overshot as many air of those design parameters as we could to allow us room for experimentation. And uh, as we move forward, that's a big part of what we're about because uh, in the end, even though we're doing a lot of base malts now, we're, we're experimenting with specialty grains and different grains. And at the end of the day, we want to be creating unique products that uh, can actually advance the art of brewing and flavors. With so. that, that greater control, I think that's what you're describing. You're saying you're able to, to dial airflow and temperature in a bit better. Does that give you some, some insight into when you are able to go a bit more broad and craft more towards flavor or particular qualities, or is that really more about just quality control? Does that let you do things more efficiently to a higher quality than if you didn't have quite as much control over the system? I mean, I, I think the I think the control helps. Any control you can have, whether it's you know um, your inlet outlet temperature, kind of narrowing that gap and being able to cool and heat efficiently. Yeah, that that absolutely allows us to be creative. Um, we're you know we're we're by no means expert malters yet. Malsters, we're we're kind of you know we're we're learning every day and every batch. We just did our first uh, batch of like a Munich care Munich hybrid. So the creativity aspect is great, uh, but the sure, the control absolutely helps you. Anytime you can sort of dial in a, a, on a button or, you know, kick on a heat pump to cool down, you can, you can all these things create unique products. And um, we've, we've certainly made mistakes in the malt house that uh, after the batch came out, say, wow, this is, uh, you know, this is something. So we call it the lab, our, our friends over at Hartwick and say, hey, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we kind of exceeded our germination temperatures here and they'll say, oh yeah, well, that's pretty much what you do with a Munich malt or, you know, things like that have, have definitely happened, but it, it certainly helps when we can dial those back in and, um, learn from our mistakes or maybe, you know, a mistake creates kind of a unique thing and try to repeat that next time. You touched on, um, uh, diversity and experimentation, sort of a creative approach. Is that, would you say that's sort of your, your guiding philosophy, even if you're still in the growth stage? Is that sort of your, your vision of, of success down the road is being able to not just provide local product and quality product, but also have that alongside of that really creative, unique, and interesting product? Yeah. I, we realize right now that local is, um, unique enough in itself to help us get a foothold but at the end of the day we don't want to just be about local even though it's such a positive story we want to be about good and hanging our hat on quality so yes um uh 
we want to um, develop a reputation for having good malt, and then we also want to develop new products that uh, may or may not be on the market available for whatever reason. Um, so yes, uh, at the end of the day, that's the direction we want to head. Well, and there are other maltsters that are coming up in the state as well. So I, I imagine you're thinking a lot about uh, what you're putting out there, what you're able to offer that's uh, a special benefit or, or much more attractive or, or just different from you know the other couple of maltsters that are operating in Maryland right now. Yep, absolutely. You know, again, that, it kind of goes back to the, the last thing, but it's really, it's what we want to be about. We want to be about not only local and quality, but unique. So if there's a grain that will grow and all of them do, you know, we want to give it a shot. We want to malt it and we, we want to try to do something unique to it, whether it's, uh, you know, adding heat at kiln or playing with moisture levels. Uh, we really want to, we, we want to try to make some things that haven't been made before because, uh, you know, the malting trade is, uh, the malting business is not new. It's been around a long, long time, longer than any of our great grandparents even. But, um, you know, th there are these standard products and there are, there's a lot of room for experimentation, just like there was with, and still is with craft beer, uh, following kind of, um, the, you know, the boom in the nineties. You talked about a, a feedback loop on your process working with your lab in terms of, uh, where, you stumble across something unexpected and looking at that analysis to help you understand what those impacts are on the process. You also collaborate more closely with local brewers, right? Are you getting similar sort of feedback more on that sort of sensory end of things in terms of how your malt in particular is performing uh, both in their process, but also uh, how it's manifesting in the, in the end product, like how it actually tastes in the beer? We are. Yeah, I, I wish I could say we were more organized in doing it, but uh, being stretched for time, we, we at least try to stop by breweries, try the beer, um, also, you know, look at their brew sheets, look at efficiencies and see how our lab results are matching up to theirs. Um, we, we definitely have customers who, uh, for any, for anybody listening to the breeze hot steep method, that's one of the best ways to evaluate. Uh, malt, malt quality, you make a hot steep and there's kind of a flavor wheel of, uh, you know, hundreds, probably more than hundreds of, uh, you know, characteristics and smells and, um, and it's a great way to, uh, assess our malt. I, I think you've actually done that for us. So thank you. Uh, I enjoy looking at your results. Um, but we, we're organizing, uh, periodically, uh, we're, we're getting one together here in a couple of weeks with some local brewers where we're all going to do kind of a hot steep of, all our available malt right now. So uh, we try to do that in addition to, of course, you know, trying beer and talking to brewers. Feedback is valuable. I mean, that, lab results are great, right? But if your brewer can't work with your malt, then that's, that's the most important thing. So you, you, have to, you have to talk to your brewers and see what they think. And that's where we're heading towards, like Jesse said, where the next push will be sensory analysis um, and really making that push to every brewery we sell to. And, and, and we get feedback now, but um, we want to take it to the next level. Yeah. You touched on a little earlier other grains that you're working with. And I was curious if you could talk about those a bit more. Uh, as a brewer myself, I certainly appreciate uh, a high quality base malt, uh, even specialty malt that you mentioned, spelt. I've used some rye that you guys have malted before. Can you talk about, like, is that 
close to, very similar to the process of malting barley? Are there particular challenges with that or rewards with uh, dealing with these other varieties of grains that you're taking in? Sure. And every grain malts just a tad bit differently, some very similar, but at the end of the day, each one is a little bit different process. But um, I should say process is the same. The parameters we shoot for during the process vary quite a, quite a bit uh, among the grains, but um, we've just been really lucky to been able to find some local farmers um we you know we began experimenting with some uh some wheat immediately because wheat is readily available but uh we've also sought and found uh i think three or four varieties of rye in in maryland that we've been working with which is very exciting uh for us uh with the, the maryland rye history that exists um uh, we've done oats which was another very exciting uh, run for us. Um, most of the oats grown in Maryland right now are grown in Western Maryland. So again, we, we just got lucky. We, we, we found a farmer that, um, had a great crop of oats and we, we were able to, uh, uh malt a couple of batches of that. We have more to malt very soon. The spelt was another surprise come to the table and we're actually looking to plant more of that, uh, this coming year. Uh, so, uh, spelt's a challenge, uh, in itself because spelt comes out of the field with a huge husk on it, which, um, is, is challenging, uh, knowing how to handle that. Um, you know, do you take it off before the malting or do you let it knock off at the end? Um, and, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's a little bit more work because we, we feel we need to probably knock it off before we malt it. But we're, we're excited with new challenges and that's why we're here is to make new, unique stuff. On one hand, we want to make some products and prove to ourselves how to make a product that exactly aligns with what's out there. Just, to fully understand what they're doing. On the other hand, we want to then take that and tweak it into our own. And so that's the... And I think with malting too, there, there are some closely guarded secrets where, you know, folks uh, kind of keep those pretty close to chest. And, um, you know, spelt and wheat, uh, you know, rye, you look for certain things, you look for lower moisture content during germination. But... Um, it's hard to find. Information is very hard to find, and um, you know, it's it's you, you just can't. There's two or three malting books out there, and and there's maybe uh, you know five sentences given to given to rye and the one I'm thinking of. So, it's uh, it's it's a lot of trial and error, honestly. If you have the base barley, you know, you can find information on malting barley. But if, if you have the base of barley, you can you can apply that, and if you sort of take an experimental uh, approach, you can you can craft some unique things. And in terms of, uh, at least as a, as a beer consumer, the rising prevalence of rye, it seems like, uh, that's a worthwhile experiment. Like, there's, there's an interesting demand curve. You, of course, have to have your base malt, but a lot of people, especially the history of rye in this state that you mentioned, like a rye beer. So being able to work through that lack of knowledge and produce something that's of consistent quality with the other grains that you're malting seems like there's a pretty good upside to that yeah yeah absolutely yeah the rye is i mean rye right now there there are a lot of farmers talking about rye and for good reason there's um you know there's there's distilleries that are coming into the state and uh, they can use raw rye they don't even necessarily need malted rye so that's a great opportunity for farmers to sell you know to sell direct um, it's also a great opportunity for those farmers to uh, 
you know, work with us because then we can buy some and we can malt it and then we can sell the malted rye. And so, uh, you know, brewers and distillers are getting something local and they're, they're, there's kind of a supply chain that's, that's being built right now. That might pose a, a larger question then. Uh, rye is one example. Are there other sort of trends in beer uh, that relate to ingredient choices that you think kind of trickle back to you? And I think maybe there's another obvious one in the form of um, the growing popularity, however you feel about it, of hazy beers, so using more oats and uh, wheat than you might in other styles of beer. Do you see that affect kind of the conversations that you're having on the supply side, uh, what brewers are interested in, what they're buying beyond just uh, base malt that, that they find to have favorable qualities, not the least that it's a locally grown product? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that's a case of um, the beer consumer driving the beer market uh, and then brewers coming to us. I, I think we get kind of a, we're so small right now, I think we get a snapshot of that. And I think the snapshot is that, you know, our 10 to 20 customers, they come in and they want something different um, and, and we're always willing to do it. But I, I, um, I think I could be able to answer that question better in about two years when we're, we're at a more meaningful volume. Right now we're, you know, if, if brewery A comes to us and, and they're looking for something, we say, yeah, let's, we'll, we'll get it or we have it. Uh, but we're, you know, we're, we've seen New England IPAs, you know, um, and we've supplied malt for it. We've, uh, we've also had customers that just come to us and they, they don't really even want to get into the details of malting. They say, I want a two row base malt, you know, for an anniversary beer or something like that. And so, uh, so we haven't seen, I don't know, I, I just can't quite answer how, uh, we're, we're just looking at it from the standpoint of if you want it, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. So you think maybe when you say two years, you think maybe when you've gotten a bit deeper into that creative curve, when you're uh, expanding the specialty malts, for instance, that, that you're able to produce, then you might think in terms of like just your regular offerings, you might see a little bit more feedback there because uh, now it's more on demand. Then it might be, here's a palette and you can kind of observe what each brewer goes to on that palette of, you know, yep, what flavors. Exactly. Are I mean, we, we struggle. Um, it's not. It's not news that we struggle with keeping an inventory because we're just so small right now. So when we can sort of maintain more of an inventory and get a bigger customer base, I think we'll have a better, you know, we've got better market coverage and we'll sort of know what more more people are, are looking for. Right now, you know, we're essentially kind of a custom malt house. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So how much malt are you producing? Well, it's about a... Thousand pounds of clip finished malt, and uh, this bin holds roughly a little bit more than that on the raw grain side. But then you lose about twenty percent of your weight in malting, and uh, it finishes about uh, nine hundred to eleven hundred pounds. And um, we're uh, fortunate enough to be able to uh, sell all that. Typically, it's sold before we get it out of the bin. But um, it's really good. It's exciting. On one hand, on the other, it's not saying a whole lot because we're at a thousand pounds. So. The jury's out, but we'll, we're really excited to be uh, working on a expansion at the moment that'll take us and add three tons weekly capacity uh, to our system. So we'll have a, a basically a new system while we keep the old one running for uh, more experimental uh, batches. We'll keep the new one running with uh, uh, base malt initially and then hopefully uh, be ramped up enough to do specialty on that as well. Uh, and so soon we'll be at three and a half tons a week and, uh, we're, we're ecstatic about that. And, uh, we believe that, uh, 
there's there's enough demand in Maryland to, to fill that. Yeah, we might be able to start paying our bills then. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Can you uh, help the listener? And uh, to be honest, for me too, because a thousand pounds, like that's just kind of a number hanging out there. What what would that roughly equate to in terms of like, say, a, a 15 barrel brewery, like a brewery? That's probably somewhere between 10, 10 barrel, 15 barrel system, somewhere. So somewhere single between, batch yeah. for single like batch a 10 for barrel, once so. a week, and we're producing once a week. So, you know, um, yeah. And that's, that's again, that's why we're kind of, we are custom right now, because that's all we, all we can be at this yep. volume. Yeah. Get enough for one batch of beer, pretty much. And that's where we wanted to be, honestly. We wanted to be able to prove it all the way to the consumer. And uh, in order to do that, you need to give somebody enough to make a whole beer out of it. So, and we do uh, we do sell to some nano breweries as well, so you know they can that one batch can last a whole lot longer there. And um, you know we we've sold to, we just had a had a sale to a bigger brewery, but most of them's probably 10, 15 barrel range. I wanted to circle back a little bit when you were talking about uh, malting some of these other grains that there's not as much information. You do have some uh, access to resources. That help out in some ways uh, and i'm thinking in terms of like well first the fact that you were connected through the extension agent at umd uh, but also i'm thinking like public breeding programs like you guys track on that end of things things that might not be obvious in terms of not just the end product but the variety of uh, grains that you're planting that the farmers you're working with are planting and even thinking about like what the wider field is right of research and the agronomics right so the um how viable different different grains might be in different conditions, different seasons, right? Yep. We have been fortunate enough to have a lot of um, backing agencies. Uh, as you mentioned, University of Maryland Ag Extension Program, they've been vital. In, uh, we should probably give Bob Cradiville Bob a shout Cradiville. out, too. He's, he's the guy. He's, he's really <laughs> the one that introduced us and great resource. And he's done malting barley trials now in the state for the past two years, and he'll be doing another one. He's done spring and winter malting barley trials, and he's got, he comes from a barley background, frankly. He, he worked at the barley breeding program in North Dakota, I believe, for quite a while before coming to the Maryland to head, um, I couldn't tell you what he had when he came here. He's been here forever, and uh, he was in charge of our uh, barley breeding program when we had one, and then that was... Uh, dismantled it at some point in the past uh, 10, 15 years ago when they, they didn't see a future in barley. But uh, fortunately enough, um, Maryland has been funding Virginia Tech. Uh, Virginia Tech is the closest barley breeding program to us. And so we are able to share numbers because Maryland is uh, supporting that. And um, we've also got uh, a great county to work in. Howard County's uh, stepped up and uh, provided us with some small but meaningful um uh, monetary assistance in the forms of uh, innovation grants. Uh, they've also, um, we were also able to apply, and it looks like we're going to get uh, a, um, uh, excuse me, a loan through their um, catalyst loan program. Uh, the state, on the state level, the Department of Agriculture has been helping to act as an intermediary between the various uh, agencies. Um, Marbidco has helped us along the way. Marbidco was a huge one. They're agriculturally uh, centered um, unit, I guess, that uh, uh, just f helps to fund and develop uh, innovative agriculture throughout the state of Maryland. 
both on the farming side, on the harvesting side too, on uh, forestry and, and seafood products. So uh, our bid code did give us a couple of uh, small, again, small, but extremely meaningful grants that helped us uh, along the way. So um, everybody's been very supportive. Uh, it's been it's been exciting. Yeah, and then on the malting side, um, I think education's a pillar. Yeah, if you can educate yourself about something you do. So um, I took a class in Canada, but there's kind of a small group of maltsters uh, around the country, and a lot of them are very helpful. You know, they're closely guarded secrets, but uh, mostly everybody will open up their shop to you and, and help you if they can. So uh, we've had a lot of assistance there, and then there, there are some lab programs around the country that offer great malting advice. Some of the, again, the educational classes, you can reach back to those teachers and you can get answers on something that you run into that you have no idea what you're looking at. So it's, it's, uh, there are a lot of resources out there and they, they've all, uh, you know, you just need to keep in touch with everybody and, and keep, uh, keep, keep on the questions and send on the questions if you have them. Is there anything I haven't thought to ask you that you'd like people to know about the malt house? couple things. Uh, one of them is uh, our business model was always, uh, we've got the Maryland flag on our bag. So it says grown and malted. Um, you know, we're, we're looking to source, uh, at some point we will grow and we'll probably have to expand the footprint. But right now we source within 20 miles of our malt house and we want to keep that radius small. We want to keep it local. Uh, what's exciting is it's grown here, it's malted here, it's brewed with here and it's consumed here. It never has to leave the county or the state. And that I think is great. Um, another thing we're looking at maybe making this spot a local flavor center, uh, get some help from home brewers to brew with some of our malts because quite frankly, we just, it's one of the things we're really stretched on time and we can't make the brewing happen as much as I hate to say it, but, um, uh, setting up kegerator in here and having breweries in and kind of doing flavor analysis and, uh, sensory and QA, QC kind of stuff. Um, so th those are two things that come to my mind. You mentioned the expansion. Is there anything else coming up maybe in the more immediate future that you'd like people to know about? Yeah, I think we're always just extremely excited about the beer openings. Uh, that's for us where it all comes together. Um, and so I would, if you're interested in Dark Cloud Malt House, the best two ways to access us, if you're a home brewer, you can find us at Maryland Homebrew. Um, but then if you follow our social media page, you'll see uh, where we're releasing a beer that's all Maryland beer. Um, Milkhouse Farmbury actually recently made the switch. They're by far our best customer, and they recently made the switch to 100% Maryland grain. So they are buying everything in Maryland and malt. And it's incredible. Uh, Tom Bars has done. Um, so you can pretty much any day of the week go find a Maryland beer at Milk House. But um, other breweries have come to us and tapped us for special events and special brews. And um, we would say just follow our, our homepage there, uh, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook to just find more about those releases. Excellent. Danny, Jesse, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. In the next dialogue of a peculiar character. The reason we're doing this business, the reason we're starting this business is because we want to help 
foster a community where people feel welcomed and can get away and relax and escape from the stressors of their daily life. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash peculiar character and become a backer. Patrons enjoy special behind-the-scenes access and bonus content. The support of my patrons is greatly appreciated. Until next time, chase what calls you. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.